KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I am Mark Mono. This is the Henry George Program, show all about homeownership, housing policy, and housing politics. Today in the program, we have on Shane Phillips. Shane Phillips is the author of the book, The Affordable City, and is with the UCLA Lewis Center. We'll talk all about a recent article he wrote about the problems of homeownership and where it can go from here. But uh, let's just uh, let you know things. So uh, welcome, Jen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So uh, you have uh, just on uh, you know March 11th uh, this uh, recently in the Atlantic uh, a new article: Why It's Better to Rent Than to Own. I think it has a different title. On actually published, uh, you know. And you also have a recent book, uh, The Affordable City: Strategies for Putting Housing Within Reach and Keeping It There. But let's let's start off talking about this uh, article: Why It's Better to Rent Than to Own. Uh, you know, uh, if if you think that's the best way to frame it, but just just uh, talk a little bit about what the general ideas are in this uh, article. Sure, and you know, even as a starting point, it's probably helpful to point out that honestly, I don't believe right now it is better to rent than own, and that's kind of the problem. Um, right now, we do all of these things to make ownership as appealing as possible, and very few to make renting uh, appealing. And my hope is that we can really change that somehow. Um, you know, right now, I, I think there's two, there's a few ways of looking at this, but I guess the biggest appeal of homeownership, of course, is the potential for generating a lot of wealth. And for a lot of people, it's ultimately, you know, their entire retirement savings, um, which is a, is a pretty terrible way to design a social welfare system. But it's, it's kind of what we have in this country for many people. Um, renting, on the other hand, has a lot of benefits. Uh, it's it's certainly very flexible. You can move when you need to and not be stuck in place as owners often are. Uh, but the biggest thing, the biggest downside, of course, is the lack of stability and the lack of opportunity to generate wealth from that. And so really the question I'm asking, and I propose one possible you know, path out of this, but really it's more about asking the question of, is there something else we could be doing? Is it really, are the only options really own and take incredible risk that that investment is just not going to pan out for you and you're going to be stuck in place um, in any case or rent and just get really nothing out of that deal in the long run? Um, is there something better? Is there some way to have some of those benefits of renting the flexibility and the limited risk and still generate at least some amount of wealth out of the deal um, and that's an especially important question in places like L.A. and San Francisco, where there's really no prospect for ownership for a lot of people. And so I think it's it's you know particularly important to ask that question of can we do better by renters, not just to make it more affordable, but actually competitive with renting, not not something that or sorry, competitive with ownership. Yeah, I, mean, I think one of the key problems is, you know, are we talking is it better to rent or to own for a person, or is it better to have a renting society or an owning society? And these are not the right. same thing, even though that, you know, we do not make decisions for society. Unfortunately, you know, this is kind of <laughs> out of our hands for the most part. So most people, you know, kind of treat it as normative to own because it is normative. Uh, and you really can't blame people for that. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, just going to enjoy it uh, reading through realtors on, on Twitter and, you know, they, they make up lists and lists, you know, they're always trying to, you know, kind of oh, yeah. elevate their product. So, you know, what are the reasons you want to own? And there's like, one just made like a bunch of different grids, privacy, accomplishment, 
uh, family, you know, caring for your family because renters can do that. Community, comfort, <laughs> stability, personal expression, and uh, finally, financial investment. You know, renters could and should have all these things. I think every right, person right. deserves privacy, deserves a sense of accomplishment. Renters should be able to have families and express themselves through their environment. Uh, but I think one of the biggest bridges, of course, is the last one, you know, equity, you know, investment, yeah. uh, you know, because it is, you know, considered to be kind of just a waste of money to rent. It's just, you know, it's it's a weird system. If you're a renter, you just kind of, you know, let money filter away. If you're an owner, right, you, you spend the same on a mortgage and you're gated by your ability to get the down payment. And at the end, you kind of get your money back. I mean, the bank gets half, but, you know, in right. the end, right. you still come out ahead. So, I mean, and I think the, the question is, okay, is this, you know, the only way? But uh, let's kind of go into the nuts and bolts of this kind of, you know, rental pension, uh, which is kind of this, uh, mm -hmm. you know, kind of high level idea of, you know, how things could be different. Sure. So I'll say that there's a few ways of, of framing this. The way I talk about it in the Atlantic article is essentially you have the government purchase existing multifamily buildings. And if you move into those buildings, you know, you're paying, say you're paying $1,500 a month in rent, uh, and maybe 600 of that is going towards paying off the loan that was taken out to purchase that building in the first place. The rest is, you know, the interest on that debt, it's the maintenance and operations, it's putting aside some money for future capital expenses. So you really can't expect as a renter to capture that because that's just going to upkeep. But a fair amount of the money you're spending is going toward paying down a loan of some sort. And wouldn't it be nice if instead of paying that loan down for a landlord, a private investor, you were paying it down and getting that money back? Um, and if the government itself is loaning itself money um, and then you know allowing you to live in this and, and collect that, then that could work. I think... You know, that's that's one way of looking at this. I also think uh, and, you know, I've had conversations over the past couple of weeks with people about, you know, maybe this is even better as like a regional co-op model. Um, so co-ops aren't super popular or common in the U.S., but they're pretty common overseas. Um, but to scale this up to, you know, not just a building level, but a, a region wide level, ideally, where you have maybe multiple um, co-ops that own many buildings and you can any of them that you live in the share of your rent that you're paying that's paying down their loan is just accumulating on a balance sheet for you um, it is equity for you to keep and you know maybe there's an enabling framework that the government sets up so to participate in this regional co-op you have to agree that the equity that is built up by individual tenants is transferable between different co-ops within the region or within the entire country, who knows? Um, there's a million details to work out with this. And I think one of the biggest questions I still have is, you know, I, I approached all of this thinking the, the system of home ownership that we have really makes long-term solutions challenging because so many people have their wealth wrapped up in their homes. And so for that reason, many people want to see prices continue to rise. And so, I want to make renting appealing because renters tend to vote in more pro-affordability, pro-renter ways, pro-tenant ways. But if we, if, if tenants see themselves as having 
a stake in the continued appreciation of property values, then I'm actually doing the opposite of what I'm hoping, right? Like I'm just turning renters into home voters, basically, where they also want to see prices rise. So how you design that program so that they don't view things that way and they actually benefit when prices go down rather than up, I think is a really challenging question. But I do think there's ways to, to address that. Yeah, I, I, a, a big part of it, obviously, is, yeah, you know, how much it is localized, you know, when it is yeah. your house versus your block versus your neighborhood versus the whole city. I mean, I'm reminding a lot of ways. I mean, it's kind of a backdoor way that some people have talked about, you know, in the same way as social wealth fund, you know, like minor plan type, you know, putting all the equity of all societal wealth and then kind of divvying up to citizens. Uh, you you know you could localize this to to real estate. You could have a real estate RIT. You know basically you know just uh, you know kind of have the housing equity and then all residents uh, share from it. And you know right. in this you know kind of there's at least in the proposal for the rental pension, uh, it isn't in fact you know all residents of a city. Uh, it's people who are part of this essentially kind of you know public co-op of sorts. Uh, right, you know, right. and it could go different ways. I, I like the fact too this can actually be used to kind of counteract the you know kind of unbalanced generational wealth bias by kind of trying right. to you know weigh it uh, the, the other way. But, yeah, it doesn't uh, have that barrier to entry. Is really one of the biggest appeals to me is if you can afford the rent, and the rent would be the same as any market rate unit, basically. If you can afford to live in that unit, then you automatically start generating wealth and you don't have to save up $100,000 or, you know, more to the point, have your parents give you $100,000 if they have it, if they're most likely white. Um, and so just as an except having access to this is really an important thing. And, um, you know, the, the point I make in, I think, the Atlantic article is, you know, right now people are just spending a couple thousand dollars a month on rent and, they have nothing to look forward to, really, except for paying a little bit more next year and a little bit more the year after that, and and that's it. Like, and that's not uh, a long term strategy, I don't think. Yeah, you could look at. I mean, I think it's an interesting question. Uh, you know, to kind of go into the history of is this a designed plan or is this kind of a bunch of different happenstance that have created the American homeownership system? Because we treat it as just kind mm-hmm. of nature. But, you know, as you mentioned, in Europe, it's it's fascinating to read, like, some places, uh, you know, such as... I was looking at, like, 1980s statistics on Vienna, and outside their social housing... As one does, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I got this great book uh, that, like, just full of the just extremely boring data blocks. But uh, outside, I was surprised, like, outside the social housing, so, like, you know, the other stock, it's not private landowner like landlord stock as you'd expect even mm-hmm. though it's the non it, it is you know home like uh home renter co-ops you know that is the norm in a number of cities and that's almost unheard of here outside of a few kind of cousins yeah. like clts and so on which are usually not very meaningful but you know in, in other places this is you know uh, a plurality if not you know, higher of of what you see as, as far as the stock goes but, you know, in America, you know, you can look at, you know, how much is our habitual lack of solidarity owing to, you know, segregation, you know, racial hierarchies. Mm-hmm. But then on top of it, like, I don't know if there's an original sin of during the New Deal, instead of actually supplying subsidies for housing, instead they found the easiest way to revenue neutral, uh, you know, process to generate housing, which is we will... 
uh, take on the risk of mortgage loans. Right. And yeah, that's a way that the government does something without putting any sort of actual expenditure uh, on the books. Right. And that has been the system. And then every generation, it gets geared up. It's like, oh, let's let's securitize, financialize the mortgages more. And, you know, it's and then it you know becomes like, OK, what is the point here? In the 30s, it was, you know, we had people who needed houses to be built. We need to, th- you know. Right. And that's what that's what financialization is. It's shifting like time. It's the time burden of what you have now versus later. And, you know, when you actually need stuff built, that there's a good argument. You, get the lumber built now, have people pay it off later as opposed to having to capitalize it all at front. But, you know, now we have this crazy positional good world in which people like have to get a down payment, not really to actually, you know, put into motion real resources. It is a purely kind mm-hmm. of weird financialized gating. And like, what are we doing here? You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of bizarre how it just kind of evolves this way. It's out of our hands now. And yeah, and a hundred years ago, the thirty-year mortgage guarantee that the federal government instituted—that was the sort of access uh, improvement reform of its day. Yeah, it, it made housing accessible to people who it wasn't accessible to in the past. And it is, you know, it's just—I think it's kind of run its course, really. Like, I, I, I'm not sure it was a bad idea at the time. Um, but it's, and, and I, I struggle actually, cause I'm like, well, if you just extended it to 40 years, people are living a lot longer, like that yeah. could work too, but that the price of housing will rise to kind of a- accommodate that. And this is, you know, this all gets back to really scarcity and, and everything at the root of this, where if you're, you can, you can spread out the, the payments over 40 years instead of 30 but if you don't have more homes being built, then, you know, the existing properties are all just going to capture. Yeah, um, it's I that, mean, the land residual is, is, is everything. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it makes sense if you're like in your early 20s, you need a place to live. Why not, you know, kind of essentially borrow the construction mm-hmm. labor materials and then pay it off later? That actually makes a good deal of sense. You don't have, yeah. you shouldn't have to wait 30 years to buy to get kind of, you know, to get these resources. But yeah, it's like like what happens as you kind of extend it out, it all gets priced out front and you can imagine like what's, you know, it's it's classic pyramid scheme structure. What's next? It's like you like are going to have like generational debt like, you know, people have to be paying off their parents, you know, mortgage, you know, right, right. born into it. And you're you're getting at an important point too about uh, you know, one of the downsides to home ownership in the long run is you're talking about someone in their 20s saying, like, why throw my money away on renting when I could take out this 30-year loan and buy? But if you're going to move six times in the next 10 years because you're going to school, you're, you know, your family situation is changing, you're changing jobs a lot more than we did 50 years ago, the prospect of doing that just it doesn't have the same appeal, even as it might have, you know, generations ago. And that's part of why I'm thinking about this idea and I'm not married to any particular structure of, of this idea. It's just a, a, a big picture thing. But thinking of this as like, what is the next 30-year mortgage? Um, and rather than have it be this thing that an individual has to take out, could we have it be something that the government or nonprofits or co-ops or what have you is taking out at a larger scale? And then people just by nature of paying their monthly rents are doing their part to pay that down. And as a consequence, they're 
they're able to, you know, share in, in the equity that's generated. And like, that seems pretty reasonable to me, actually. How you get there is a huge question, uh, but it doesn't sound crazy. And, yeah. and really the most interesting thing about the response to this article, you know, there's been a lot of support and there's been a lot of skepticism, and I think that's all fine. But what's been most interesting is the people who don't really spend any time thinking about housing and then just reading it kind of, you know, having no background and saying like, yeah, why why are these two options that we have right now the only things? How could it be that this is it? Yeah, it's there should be something better than this that works for more people. And it's just not available right now. It's I mean, it's also very interesting. Some things are so outside of the political discourse on housing that whenever they're uttered, they make people confused and or angry. <laughs> and one of those is essentially market rate public housing. People don't know what to do with it because they feel public housing, <laughs> it's for affordability. It's like, oh, you can have a lot of benefits for society if you create public housing and then rent it at market you know, prices. And people don't like it. It just looks like an alien breed or something. You know, what is this thing? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's I mean, I think what you're basically saying is like, if you're going to have market rate housing, you could either have the profits go to an investor, a private investor, or you could have the profits go to the government effectively and used to subsidize some more affordable units or something or for whatever yeah. you think is important for the government to spend money on. But that's usually the most common use, I think. Yeah, well, I think one of the most like it's it's funny. I think the people who really get it the most are the kind of crazy anarcho-capitalists because they say like they look at everyone's like you don't really own your land; you're just renting it from the government. You pay your price, and they're like you're, you're dead right. You know, yeah, absolutely. You know, let's mm. you know let's just acknowledge the fact that nobody has allodial rights to land. We're not all you know, actually in a feudal system, and so like yeah, let's actually you know we all are renters with different degrees of financial interest. Let's kind of do the best we can with it instead of having these weird kind of perverse outcomes but then again i mean you look at the fact is this designed is this you know perverse or the fact that you know the the you know the one of the hugest subsidies is the mortgage interest deduction we do mm -hmm. so much to kind of either because we're blindsided or because this is you know social engineering to uh, continually beef up what we get out of out of out of home ownership and i, I think the question is i mean i think you say like yeah average people like they don't think about this much, and I think they do. I think you know, people can uh, look at this with a with an open mind. I mean, I, I suppose to me, kind of ground zero is how do you get on people who are you know who do think about this? You know, whether academics or people mm -hmm. in in nonprofits. If there's one kind of thing that depresses me, is I see like nonprofits, like, we need to close the racial wealth gap in home ownership, and I'd say yes, that's correct. And their answer is by like making home ownership more attractive. It's like, no, no, right, right. you're not like there is a divide, not because homeownership. It isn't because poor people in America didn't realize that the homeownership exists and it's great. I think they're well aware that owning right, your home right. is normative. It is the fact that like they can't get on the homeownership ladder because it necessarily kind of divides people between who those who can and those who can't. And I really hate the fact there's even nonprofits out there who... I think don't get that we need kind of a structural reform of this system. Yeah, it's and I don't want to be critical of them, really, because obviously they're trying to do something really positive and sure. important. But I mean, I, I basically agree that there's this a real challenge with homeownership generally is, you know, if you're going to get a lot of people who can't currently afford for one reason or, no, or another 
to buy a home, it's going to cost a lot of money and, and that's fine. But people who are on the margins of home ownership are also the ones who are most likely to be harmed yeah. by owning a home. They're the ones who buy when the market is at its peak. Um, they're the ones who are first to be foreclosed upon. They have, you know, often less stable employment. And so even if things don't, you know, if the market is fine, they may still not be and they may lose their home. And so there is this element of like, well, if we're going to spend a lot of money on helping people into homes because we believe that generates wealth, which it often does, maybe we could just spend that money just giving it to people <laughs> and that would and and there would be no big risk for for half of the people who get that money to just lose it all yeah and then it gets scooped up by you know blackstone or whatever in in the end yeah it's tragic i mean our plans is because we don't feel we can actually do anything you know kind of proactive it's like we want to yeah. at the margin inspire more people to invest which means that you get highly leveraged people you know, in, in extremely volatile fringe environments. And, you know, 2008, obviously, was one of the you know biggest examples in recent memory. But, yeah, these people get wiped out. And this is not surprising, you know. This is what happens yeah. when we push the risk onto people instead of doing what, you know, a society should do, which is kind of pooling the risk. Yeah, especially for the largest expense that you have um, and something we treat as, as an investment and probably shouldn't. But that was one thing that, you know, I wanted to emphasize in my Atlantic article was just this reality that we we treat homeownership as like if you can get in, it's going to be great. Like it works for everyone, basically. Yeah. And I mean, even if you put aside the Great Recession and the housing crash, it's just still not true for a lot of people in many parts of the country over multiple generations. They would have been better off just renting, um, but instead they bought. And, you know, maybe their property value slightly increased, but way less than it would have if they had put their money elsewhere or it actually fell. Um, and amidst all that, they're like stuck in place and they don't have the flexibility they would have as if they had just rented instead. And there's no way to know as an individual resident, whether you're a renter or a homeowner, exactly where your community is going. Like, is Boeing going to leave? Is the aerospace industry going to crash entirely? Like, is tech going to come to the Bay Area or is it going to go to Miami instead? Like, maybe that was the question 50 years ago. I mean, it's not really the question now. We know it's not going anywhere. Yeah, there's but a lot of questions with COVID and telepresence. Who knows? You yeah, know? yeah. But my point is just that there's so much uncertainty. And I think a lot of homeowners, you know, the, the Palo Altons of the world who think like, they are rich because they made a good decision yeah. when in fact they're rich because they were lucky. Um, and there are people who are poor because they were unlucky. And that's because of how we designed our housing system. And we could do it differently. I think it, there are plenty of examples where this isn't the case. You know, it's not just based on the happenstance of where you live. You're either fabulously wealthy or fabulously poor. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> fabulously poor is maybe a strange statement. But like, I mean, I guess like, and, and I think that you look at these places and it, without the hazing system of down payments and kind of gating you into it and people make me feel, mm -hmm. oh, I, it's not like their society is, is, you know, is depraved as a result. I think these places, if anything, have a, I think a richer social fabric than these weird atomized. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's the thing, like California, where we're both at is obviously weirder than most with Prop 13, literally kind of 
you know, grounding people. Like, I, just mm-hmm. like living in a place where people can actually move around within a city. And like here, like you literally are chained to your house, yeah. uh, you know, and, and with, with, your, with your property. And like we try to make changes. Prop 19 passed last year. And now we have people who are, you know, either if you're old enough or you have s- several different conditions, such as being a wildfire victim, now you can move around. It's like, well, oh boy, Epicycles is trying to change, to change it. To like, it's it's pretty wild. Here, here's a question for you, though, which is just as far as kind of the general cycle, I mean, things are unbalanced right now insofar as so much of the homeownership wealth is locked up with older people, boomers, you know, to a lesser mm-hmm. extent, Gen X, but, you know, millennials are getting far less housing wealth for mm-hmm. their time in life than they did, uh, you know, generations ago. Uh, and, you know, I think people are saying like, okay, you know, boomers, they're kind of depending upon all this money to buy their house as it currently is to kind of yeah. finance the future. But really when all the boomers, you know, die, there's going to be a lot of housing locked up the system is unsustainable and there is kind of some sort of right. collapse or refiguring, you know, somehow when do you think, I mean, do you have any thoughts on when that's going to come due and what it's going to look like, or is it kind of going to you know turn around for at least more couple it's, generations? Yeah. I mean, I, who knows? It's, it's, it's certainly true that it's unsustainable. I mean, you just like game this out a few generations where every single generation is paying a larger share of their income for housing than the one before you're going to get to the point where it's like exceeding 100% of your income yeah. on average. And like, that's the trajectory that we are on. And so it has to slow down at some point. Um, and even with a lot of immigration or whatever we want to do to try to prop it up, I don't think we can go too far. There is the element, though, of like, if the boomers and, you know, whomever else is is the, the generations that are dying off, if they are not like reverse mortgaging their home or something. And they're basically just like keeping most of that wealth in the home. Well, then they're just going to pass it on to someone else. And yeah. so the wealth is, is still going to be there to some extent. So I'm not sure how big the crash is going to be. Um, there isn't but, one sort of deleveraging, you know, event per se, if it kind of yeah. just slowly leaks out to other generations, but it's yeah. still going to, weird it in some way it might just be you know kind of a plateauing that just lasts for a long time and you know if if that were to happen with some kind of intent behind it i think that would actually be a really good thing um you know something i think is is not really talked about enough and and maybe because just in terms of policy it would be almost impossible to make this happen deliberately but if homes just appreciated in value at exactly the inflation rate they would still be a really great investment you know, like you only have to put 20% down. If that I bought my place with an FHA loan four years ago and put like $15,000 down on a, on a duplex that cost almost 500,000. So like yeah. you can, this is accessible in a sense, but you know, even if you put 20% down to say nothing of putting like 5% or less down, if you get, you know, if inflation is 3% a year, and you've only put 20% of the value down in a down payment, that's a, you know, you're leveraging that five times. So that's a 15% return on your money year over year. Plus you're getting the the equity and everything. So like it can still be a good investment, even with relatively limited inflation. Um, and so I think targeting that would be great. It's just to do that. I think you really need to be like Singapore level oh, control yeah. of the, the market. And, 
A, that will never happen here in the U.S., and B, it shouldn't. <laughs> we don't want a single party deciding how our housing market works, I don't think. So uh, we have to find a different way. And that, that's kind of where the Atlantic article came from, is like how how without a authoritarian government or a complete revolution could we start moving in that direction um and this is one possibility yeah and then, i mean that reminds me of just all the you know, your book is about a lot of different policy gears to be moved which you know would be like easy for a singapore type autocracy uh but you know how do we right. do it in our political system but before i switch over to that i just like one final thought of like just home ownership and how it's changing i don't want to neglect the weird kind of factors of the of all this money leaking out to like Blackstone and all these different kind of large firms I realize, boy, for generations, people who've been buying residential, suburban sprawl, inner suburbs especially, have been seeing this great increase and we're not getting a taste of it. And now mm-hmm. they're they're putting their beak in. Uh, and like I'm watching too, like uh, broadcast TV is like one of the most common ads is this Tom Selleck ad telling old people, it's like, you should get a second mortgage uh, but it's not irresponsible. Just means that you get the money now and you pay it off mm-hmm. when you sell the home. Implied, you know, it's like when you die. You know, who cares? <laughs> so it's kind of like, don't let your children have it. Let us yeah. have it. We'll pay you now. Which is, boy, you know, if you get a nice, you know, comforting voice like Tom Selleck telling you this is responsible, <laughs> like that is, I can't see that not becoming. I mean, you call me bleak on boomers. Saying boomers will like. <laughs> screw over their kids in order to like you know cash out more now i a bunch are going to do that so it's gonna be i i'm don't know why you wouldn't honestly i mean (laughs) this is something i wanted to look into further because i just don't understand enough about how reverse mortgages work but you've probably seen me posting on on twitter about this idea that like you know you're not cash rich house poor you're just rich yeah um and you know there i i posted today about there's about 15% of uh, homeowners in the state of California that don't have a mortgage. So they own their home free and clear. And yet they are paying more than 30% of their income on housing costs. Uh, So property taxes, utilities, and so forth. So like, obviously there are exceptions to this and there are pretty large number of people who have homes that are probably worth a ton of money. They own them outright and yet they're still burdened by cost. But that's not the story for most people. Um, and there are these people who, you know, are, are worth a million dollars or more just in the value of their home. They don't see themselves as rich oftentimes. And I think part of the reason is there's not really a clear way to cash that out, just to like look to the future and say, well, I guess if I wanted to reverse mortgage it and, you know, as I reach my final years, I'm I'm taking the last bits out of it, and yeah. it's just like the bank owns it at the end. Um, but people don't think of that as an option, even though that's exactly what you do with your money in a retirement account. Like, yeah, you you plan it out to like pull it out bit by bit so that it'll last you until you die, but not so that you have you know fifty percent of it left over. Like the the point is to pull most of it out before you die. But we don't treat housing in the same way. It's just this thing you're supposed to leave behind. And I think part of the reason for that is like the housing market is such a disaster that like the American dream isn't buy a home. It's like your parents die and they give you a home. That's really the only prospect for a lot of people. Yeah, it's very fun. It's, it's 
constructing the right narrative. I remember like hearing like life insurance used to be considered kind of, you know, tawdry. It was like betting on your own mortality <laughs> until it was considered the responsible thing for people to do to take care of their families. It's like, oh, now it's mm-hmm. this night. And that's the thing too. When you find the way to make the retirement you know, cash out for, you know, people of their homes before they die, the responsible thing to do and not a way of screwing their children, like that's going to be a game changer, but they haven't built that narrative yet. But I'm, I'm curious. No, no. And it's going to be a harder argument because the the kids survive without relying on their parents, you know, retirement income, generally speaking, but they can't really get a home without relying on their parents in many places. Like, yeah. You know, who can afford a home in the Bay Area without parental support or like $200,000 or more in income a year? I have really I have are... a theory that there is some sort of, you know, extremely leveraged pyramid scheme going on where boomers are getting refinanced to help their children get down payments, you know? And mm-hmm. then, I mean, Oh, yeah. I think that's probably... It's hard to quantify because this money is kind of... It's difficult to track, you know? But, yeah. I did look, actually... Um, I was I've been trying to and I think I might have included just a link to something in the Atlantic article, but trying to figure out if the amount of money that's being passed along from parents to children when they're buying homes has changed. And I was surprised it hasn't really changed that much over the past few decades. It hasn't increased dramatically. The hmm. You know, the the sums have gone up a little bit for any given uh, contribution, but uh, not as much as I would have expected. Is this aggregated over the entire country? Yeah, and I, I, I think it's, you know, looking at the median and the average and yeah. and all of those things. But it's, you know, 10% of households. But yeah, it probably varies. A, I'm certain it varies a lot based on the market, too. Sure. I mean, that's always the thing about aggregating. When, like, you look at the Case-Shiller Index of housing costs across the entire country, it's basically matching yeah. inflation. But obviously, not the case in, like, Los Angeles, the Bay Area, et cetera. You know, very different worlds out yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. You have but, to have a lot of other places that are falling or stagnating to offset the Los Angeleses and, and Bay Areas of the of the country. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of wish we would stop using weirdly nationalized, aggregated stats for stuff like this. But how do you do it? Because, I mean, like, you're really looking at this weird texture of undulating values in different places. Like, there's no good way to sum that up unless you look at a no. map. And uh, it's it's it's... I don't have good solutions here. I just know what we're doing no. isn't great. <laughs> uh, but speaking of solutions, your book, The Affordable City, uh, it it is full of, of solutions. I mean, I would say it's kind of, I mean, reading through it kind of gave me PTSD of just, you know, this is like a crash course of, you know, the kind of lessons people have learned from bashing their head against the wall and housing <laughs> housing Twitter for, you know, the last right. six years, you know. So if if you don't want to waste your life doing that, but you want a lot of the lessons, uh, this this book is, is full of them. But uh, <laughs> just uh, say a little bit about kind of what the book is, who it's for, you know, why you wrote it, et cetera. Yeah, so it's it's really... I guess I can summarize it. So the the themes that I put into the book are supply, stability, and subsidy as like the three priorities that really any city, regardless of where their housing market and their housing policy is at right now, um, would benefit from from focusing on. So really just building enough homes, protecting tenants and uh, an existing affordable housing and subsidizing, you know, the people who who those other policies are not going to help. 
And, you know, there's a dozen or so policies within each of those headers for, you know, what to think about, um, maybe even some advice on what to enact in terms of, you know, upzoning in this or that area or parking restrictions or rent control or property taxes. It's got a lot in there, but big picture, it's more, I think you're, you're right on, like my experience in housing debate world and Twitter and so forth over the past six, six seven years really informed a lot of this. And I think it was in some ways the motivation, the, the debates I've had on and off of Twitter, just, you know, across the board talking to people and just recognizing that like, yes, we need to build a lot of housing. Um, that is like the central issue when you get down to it, but people are harmed when housing is built. In many cases, people are displaced. Um, and we can't just look at this like greater good argument of like, well, yes, some people will be harmed, but the net effect will be positive and therefore we should just go ahead with it and not really worry about the details and it's really not like a it's not a groundbreaking perspective or anything i think a lot of people share it and and really why i wanted to write the book was just to to have like a something out there that that made it clear that this is a view you can have you can want to see a lot of housing get built and want to see tenants be more protected than they are right now um and that, you know, the subsidy side of things, you just spend your money goes further when you do those other things appropriately. So that was really what it was about. Um, and it was just like, you know, if I'm convincing enough in the overall argument that all of these things are important, then what do you do with it? And so that's why about two thirds of the book is really specific recommendations um, to help walk people through this if they're not intimately familiar with it already. Yeah, I think my, my biggest takeaway, you know, is just a recognition that you have these different viewpoints, all of which are valid. Supply, right, right. you know, supply, you know, it's actually changing, you know, the built environment by producing more. Sustainability, it's protecting people. Subsidy, it's about actually transferring, you know, wealth and, you know, uh, resources from, you know, the haves to the have-nots. And so often, because it's this versus that, inaction has been the norm for generations and right, you know and right. is it massive grit that reminds me of just like kind of uh the old game of uh of like it was a traffic jam puzzle where all these cars you know like slide them around but they're all like you know there's only a few gaps mm -hmm. and that's the thing there's like no oh, yeah, room yeah. <laughs> there's no room to maneuver because they're all like there's just log jam together and what do you do because i think if you say like oh obviously we need to stop not building anything and build something. It's like, well, that's not, you know, very easy to change because we're in gridlock, you know. Nothing is possible without harming yeah. people. By the same token, we need stronger renter protections. Like, well, yes, we do, but how do we do it while not just simply papering over the fact that we have structural problems with production? And it's all these different yeah. issues. And how do you start moving anything? And I think that not only showing solutions, but prioritization about what you can do now to start digging out of this hole is, I think, I think a necessary framework because, I, I mean, yeah. the stasis we have is just so pervasive and harmful. And it's, you know, we've been living in it for our entire lives. And that stasis, again, was, was another motivation for this and, and, and really central because, you know, when like a, a more 
development and housing production oriented group would propose something or uh, legislation would come out that focuses on that. You know, tenant advocates, community based organizations would rightly express concerns about, well, what does this mean for displacement? What does this mean for like, where is this housing going to go? Um, who is going to be impacted positively and negatively by this? And that's a really important question. But then we just get stuck in in that that fight rather than moving forward with it. And likewise, when tenant protections are proposed, especially things like rent control, people who are more kind of production oriented ask the question of like, isn't this going to hurt supply? Couldn't this mean that fewer developers are going to want to build housing? And it's also a valid question. But what I think is you know clear in, in my own writing is that it's totally possible to design production policies that don't harm tenants. Um, and in the rare cases they do actually fully compensate them for that harm and then some ideally, um, and at the same time design tenant protections that, you know, with simple exemptions, like don't apply rent control to a building less than 15 or 20 years old. Like who cares the people living there making a bunch of money anyway? Um, they shouldn't be prioritized, like very simple things like that. And you can, you know, ameliorate almost all of the potential negative consequences of it. And that's all it takes. It's just we have to agree that these things are all priorities. And I feel like that agreement doesn't exist in in many parts of the country right now. And I think the places where it has started, that that agreement has started to um, come together, have been the places that have been most successful. Um, you know, the these places, none of them are perfect, but the Minneapolis's and Portland's and Seattle's and even, you know, recently Berkeley, I think, is moving in this direction really positively as well. Yeah, I think I mean, I mean, I think there's some relation of the people who have been forged in the fires of, of housing Twitter feuds and, and <laughs> debates uh, have, have they, they kind of know the way out and we're slowly getting there. And I mean, I think, you know, it's it's going to be a long path, even in the best of cases. But I think it's, it's also worth mentioning that I think so many of these are just kind of, you know, you know, you could look at them and they are policy recommendations. But, you know, they aren't all just kind of neutral pulling a uh, you know pulling a lever and you know it's a win-win the unfortunate side of the stasis we've been in is the fact that many have benefited from the stasis <laughs> you know it's right a, right i mean that's a, one of your one of your uh, bullet points here is pick one housing affordability or rising home values you know and, and i think the right. book has in some ways the unsexy you know word of affordability as opposed to kind of you know, kind of rights-based or kind of decommodified, you know, it's to say that like mm-hmm. affordability, it's something that I think helps everybody. Affordable housing is great, but it usually isn't the rallying cry of other stuff. And right. it's right. Un- it's unfortunate that there are people who make a lot of money through unaffordability of housing, which is just not a good societal level outcome. And uh, right. every, everything from that and, you know, another bullet point, don't coddle landlords. Another bullet point in the principal section is track everything. You know, there's no one, you know, there's mm-hmm. no good reason not to have good data that's transparent. But by the same token, there's a lot of people who make money through the obfuscation yeah. and, you know, asymmetries of, of the system we have now. As far as the kind of political arm of it, I, th- I think you're on the same page as me of saying a big reason, you know, of, or a kind of a big gear that needs to move to move things is renters have better material interest than homeowners and other investors. And when you have more renters, you're going to get better outcomes. 
but you know, how do you start getting that moving? How are you going to start getting the political momentum gearing up? I mean, because I think this book, you might say it's about policy, but I think it's also about politics in that sense. Yeah, it's it's certainly, uh, you know, when I give presentations on the book, uh, a point I make is that the statement about prioritizing supply, stability, and subsidy is certainly a policy statement, but it is also a political statement in that, um, you know, I use an example of uh, a project here in Hollywood in Los Angeles where they're replacing a 40-unit rent-stabilized building with a 200-unit tower with 40 income-restricted units. And, like, looking purely from a, you know, regional perspective, that's a that's a win. It's, you know, the market rate units are good. Um, the revenues that will come from that are good. Income-restricted units are better than rent-stabilized ones um, in terms of, you know, who is able to access them. Access them. Um, it's all great, and yet the renters who live in those rent-stabilized units are not going to be the ones to benefit. And so they are going to oppose this project. And you can't blame them. Um, yeah. and, and my overall message is just that if renters have to worry about what development and change means for them personally, and they have to worry that it could harm them materially and obviously, uh, then you know they're going to express concerns about that kind of change happening. And so we have to have an answer for them that says, no, you're going to be okay. And you know, frankly, if this does happen to you, here are all the things that we're going to do on your behalf that are going to make you better off. And like, there will still be people who say, like, I wanted to stay in my old building. It means a lot to me. Um, and we can't accommodate every one of those kinds of uh, concerns. But at the very least, on a financial side and like a being able to stay in the same community side, we can definitely address those. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, only a few people always get their concerns addressed on they want everything to stay the same and never change. And unfortunately, these correlate with the most uh, affluent and and well-off, you know, communities and then so on. You know, it's it's a bit hard to change it. But uh, I mean, that's I mean, that's kind of the flip side, too. It's, you know, so much of these win-win, but also a lot of loss-loss. The flip side is the fact that renters are pitted against renters here, as opposed yeah. to, you know, why is this rent-stabilized, you, know, you know, uh, place being torn down to be redeveloped? You know, it is because the, the existing framework of where you can build, at what density, just puts so much of the land off limits. And, you know... Yeah, and, and that Yucca Argyle, the Hollywood project... Um, you know, my my view is like the developer proposed according to the rules and like, you know, with the right protections, I think the project should go forward. And there have been a lot of negotiations, I think, including right of return. Um, and that's all great. But we really need to formalize those kinds of requirements. And I think, you know, if we had put those kinds of requirements in 10 years ago that said like $20,000 as a relocation payment is not sufficient. Um we're going to require you to say do right of return or or a negotiated buyout rather than just this flat and frankly low amount. Um, a project like this one might not have gone forward. They may the developers may have just looked at it and said, you know, the cost of compensating these tenants is too great. We're going to find somewhere else to build, and that would be an okay outcome too. But then this gets into the sort of intersectional nature of these of these policy areas is. Yeah. If you're going to strengthen the protections such that certain 
places where you would build now are no longer on the table, you have to create new opportunities elsewhere. Sure. And so to your point, you have to, you know, in single family neighborhoods, in other, you know, non-residential areas, you need to create capacity for housing there. You can't just close it off in one place and then like call it a day. You have to offset the, you know, think about if you're if you're kind of shutting things down in one place, you have to open them up elsewhere. Yeah. I, I also wonder too of, you know, right to return, the idea that people who are affected will actually move back to effectively mm-hmm. the same place later after it's built, everything will be taken care of. It really is a very elegant, nice solution in a lot of ways of how you can increase production and still like not displace people. Literally they stay in the same parcel. But uh, you know, I, I, I really, it's unfortunate that I think within our extremely cutthroat nature, people are skeptical and they think it will be weaponized because yes, I think in our world in which being able to get a housing permit is worth its weight in gold, like people will rob, cheat and like have loopholes enough to like murder people mm-hmm. through in order to do this stuff. And I, I mean, I think tenant activists are even skeptical of, of right to return writ large because they think it's a, it's a scheme. And honestly, you know, based upon how much money there is in pulling off schemes, I don't blame them. And it's, it's very hard to kind of build up yeah. a high trust environment to kind of get from here to there. Right. And where do you start? Right. Like, because if we just keep fighting over it, we'll never build that trust. But um, yeah, it's it's difficult. And I mean, tenant advocate groups here uh, are fighting on individual projects for right of return. But that's different than saying, like, we want this as a citywide. Well, they're actually trying to get it kind of enacted as a citywide policy as well. One thing I will say about right of return, you know, a, a, a downside to it and I I hate to say this because I I really like the idea overall, is a lot of people don't come back. And the track record on right of return type programs is not great. Um, I I know a a friend who worked with LAUSD a few decades ago or 15 years ago when they were doing their big um, school development push after getting billions of dollars in funding for that, that involved eminent domain and displacing some households and i think the number he gave me was like five percent or something of the people who were offered right of right to return actually did um and you know i don't know if maybe they received other kinds of compensation and so forth but there's also been studies of like right to return to uh you know when public housing uh developments have been redeveloped um the the actual uptake is not great and i think there's probably that's probably to some extent like a deliberate thing where (laughs) especially on the private side if it's like not managed by a nonprofit or a government agency where like they'll be happy to lose track of you or or even like there's the stories of robert moses you know robert moses having redevelopment agencies kind of just lose people on the path you'll get a right to return to these and it they it's it's in everyone's interest to screw people over if they're power powerless people who don't matter yeah and, you know, I think... That's why we need to track everything. As, absolutely. As one of I, mean, my... <laughs> that's, I mean, that's... Yeah, I think the transparency... Because, yeah, we don't know exactly how, to what degree, so many people are being screwed over, but it's happening. Yeah. And I on Like, I 100% think that, you know, the, the low success rate of these things is 100% a design 
you know, choice being made in uh, a game system because who, like, who benefits, you know? It's like every person you mm-hmm. lose, if you make more money, you're going to do it, you know? It's 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 pretty bleak. But, yeah. uh, you know, and I, I think that's the thing, too. In a sane, well-run, competent society, you would try to have these socially beneficial outcomes be administered through some sort of competent you know, reliable, accountable bureaucracy instead of an easily game system, which doesn't work. But, you know, how do you bootstrap that? Because we don't have those things. Yeah. And we don't, I, not, I, I think what you're trying to say is a better world is possible, right? <laughs> if, if, we, if we want it and if we have, you know, it, the, the problem is so many people are profiting off of our not better world as, as it is now. Yeah. But, uh, it's uh you know I mean there's I mean I think it's you know you can drill down into each each one of the things but I think mostly I, I read every bullet point it's like boy I, I remember that Twitter fight you know it's like oh that's you know basically <laughs> the, the consensus outcome you know it's uh it's it's a great uh, great resource in, in that sense but uh, yeah I think uh, you know last part here uh, let's talk about uh, the Lewis Center just kind of you know what uh, what kind of stuff you've been doing with them uh, as the manager of what's it, the uh, the Randall Lewis Housing Initiative. Uh, and what other stuff is going on and, uh, you know, what's, uh, what you see as a future of the Lewis center. Yeah. So the Lewis center has been around for a long time. Um, and its mission is, you know, the kind of typical live, work, move type, uh, fields. Um, my role is on the housing side. And so this, this, uh, position was actually created just about a year and a half ago to have someone who is on the staff, not just faculty, um, working on housing and trying to kind of build up the the connect together all the work that's being done by faculty and students and you know do my own work as well and and raise its profile in that way and so you know i see the work i do in partnership with students and faculty and our other staff as sort of three tranches like there's the typical uh you know big grant funded type stuff we're working on something with robert wood johnson foundation right now following implementation of the housing elements and specifically the affirmatively furthering fair housing requirements in California. Um, we're well, working what, on something. Remind me what happened because Trump, Trump like axed that and now it's back or. Yeah. So there was a new rule adopted in 2015, just before the Trump administration came in um, that basically increased the requirements for what cities had to do um, across the country uh, the kind of reporting they had to do on segregation patterns and making some kind of a plan, not really enforceable, but at least having some kind of a plan for how they were going to address this. Like the the background is really like the Fair Housing Act said, we need to end discrimination, but we also need to proactively reverse the patterns of segregation that we've already helped establish. And we've done pretty good at reducing segregation, that first part, and done nothing really to try to reverse those patterns of segregation and create really integrated and inclusive communities. So that rule, as modest as it was in 2015, was rolled back, uh, basically canceled, um, and we're back to what, what what existed beforehand. I saw California, so many people in Marin County freak out about <laughs> affirmatively furthering fair housing. Yeah, it's like, and then California adopted its own law, AB 686, in either 2017 or 2018, that basically adopted the requirements of the federal law into mm. California law. So we're essentially doing what it required. Oh, okay. Um, I think the, the requirements vary a little bit, but you know, it's going to be an interesting test case because the federal law was never really implemented in a meaningful way. 
And so we're going to kind of test it out for them. And presumably the Biden administration will try to bring this rule back nationally, but they might be able to learn from some of our experiences over the next year or so if they do, which is which is cool. Um, and so we got a few other things. We're looking at the transit oriented communities program here in uh, Los Angeles and, and what its results have been, especially with respect to the impact of discretionary versus by right approvals um, and, and how that's affecting uh, production overall and the benefits that are received from development. So there's that. I also spend a lot of my own personal time um, or work time, uh, but on my own working on these uh, briefs and just shorter reports. So the first one I did was on how we could reform rent stabilization in the city of LA. We always talk about reforms to Costa Hawkins and other statewide reforms, but actually we could strengthen it here in the city of LA and we just haven't. And so I pitched one possibility for that and more recently have done things like uh, looking at the opportunity for real estate transfer taxes in the city of LA and, and beyond, um, how much money that could raise and in, in, in a more kind of equitable way than we've done in the past. And then the third thing is really sort of educational. So trying to communicate more of, uh, you know, these these often complicated ideas to a broader audience, especially being in academia now, you know, no one's reading these journal articles other than other academics for the most part, and probably yourself in some cases. Housing <laughs> uh, um, Twitter is its own college. Exactly. It really is. But we want to make this accessible to more people and not just where you have to look up a tweet, but it's actually a durable <laughs> document. And so, you know, I, I wrote up something that described all the different things that people mean when they talk about affordable housing, just called it the affordable housing primer. Most recently, we uh, reviewed six different working papers that looked at the impact of market rate development on neighborhood level rents, which was a question that prior to a couple of years ago was just totally unanswered and much theorized about, but not really much was known. And um, that was really useful just as, you know, we're, we're trying to bring this stuff to the masses as, as much as we can um, and make it a little more accessible to people. So I spend a lot of time on that as well. It's, I mean, it's interesting what the role of all these things are, because it's unfortunate that every time a new academic paper comes out from different folks, it's very few people really even read it as much as they kind of say, okay, is it on my side or the opposite side of these <laughs> different fights? And then they just start like name dropping as a reference without, you know, even seeing mm-hmm. what it has inside. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit unfortunate because I think, you know, with good faith, I mean, even the stuff that, you know, may have some, you know, method, uh, you know, methodology that's a bit, you know, you know, misinformed, you can usually at least learn what people are coming from. Uh, you know, yeah, and yeah. it's, but it's, uh, academia is if, if anything, one of the few places, you know, even more, uh, you know, uh, ugly than the, uh, than the world. Of I, fe- I feel like the, uh, there's a, there's a Stanford paper on rent control from several oh, few years yeah, ago. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think anti or, or pro rent control people hate that paper and because it, ultimately says, you know, it has like pretty negative conclusions about rent control in San Francisco. But the way I read it, I'm like, well, you know, it disproportionately benefited black and Latino households. Um, you know, the the balance of cost and benefits by their own calculations was basically a wash. Yeah. But like, you know, the costs were borne by both landlords and future residents and the benefits were borne by existing residents. And I'm like, that's that's maybe a reasonable trade-off to make if the net is is zero. Um, you know, it's just all of which is to say that, like, to your point, 
when you actually read into it, there's there's a lot you can learn, and the the headline conclusion of these things is is often not the whole story. Yeah, and I think you know, you know, as you say, there usually is a lot more nuance even in the conclusions. But on top of it, it usually is yeah. not some sort of you know top of line good or bad. It usually is right. within these assumptions. What are the outcomes within this pattern? Like for example, like. Insofar as people are, are, you know, opposed to rent stabilization programs, it's usually because if you assume that the self-regulating private market is going to be the powerhouse of generating housing, it is going to become, uh, you know, it is not going to operate to the level we expect it to to produce housing. But, you know, mm-hmm. why are you assuming there should not be countercyclical public policies to actually backstop production? I mean, if you, if you are a rent control person, I would hope that you don't think the private market should be the powerhouse. So like this shouldn't yeah. even be a bad thing, you know, but uh, no, I mean, and I think it's, it's even uglier for, uh, you know, vacancy truth or discourse because then people can't even agree on are vacancies an inherently bad thing or are they bad or good because of impacts upon people like renters and prices and you know then there's like entire metaphysics of developers they exist in order to increase vacancies in order to speculate more it's just these you know it's it's a lot of very goofy kind of theologies of of housing out there yeah it it gets it's i i actually wanted to ask some people uh maybe I'll, i'll share this question today but just i was wondering just a few days ago whether there's anything other than housing really i'm sure there are some other fields where a lot of people really think that like there should be exactly as many units provided as there are households. We don't do that with food. We don't do that with cars. We don't do that with couches or video games or anything else. Like we always produce a little bit of a surplus. Um, and yet with housing, for whatever reason, there's just this feeling is like if there's a million households, there should be a million housing units. And like that's all you need. And it's a, it's an interesting uh, worldview. I would say it's it, one place I do see it is uh, just employment discourse. People feel that the employment rate, yeah, you should yeah. have no surplus vacancies for jobs. You know, you should you have it completely right. just like maxed out with a little bit to make sure everyone fits. But there's no, you know, there's no overly tight labor markets. I actually use I use employment, the unemployment rate as like an it's kind of an inverse analog of the uh, of the vacancy rate where like. When vacancy rates go up, you basically have more tenant power. Um, But when they go down, you have more landlord power, which is sort of the equivalent of like when the the unemployment rate is very high and it's a reserve army of of unemployed without preparing this without having notes. It's so hard to describe the (laughs) the order in which these things happen. But I I do come back to that very often just because it's. Uh, it, it really is the same argument. And um, what is it when there's when there's a low vacancy rate? Landlords are basically like employees when there's a low unemployment rate. Like they get to negotiate higher wages or higher rents um, in either case. I think that's the that's the analogy there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who who has the leverage 
you know exactly and like it's you know I, I think no one really thinks in terms of kind of like power and leverage as much as they should they feel like everything is like just this kind of wonky series of monads and and policy levers but yeah everything is is power in, in some sense but uh i, I think like the lewis stuff that you know, you've been behind it's, it's 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 a good mix of stuff that is both uh kind of you know for you know mass consumption and then stuff that's kind of extremely boring stuff which is only <laughs> going to be applied through the kind of levers of of technocrats i mean uh like the recent one impact fee yeah. uh, deferral right you know right. i mean that so much of kind of and this kind of relates too to your your blog post earlier of what is like a powerhouse of how you develop things is how you create some bonds at certain privileged rates and then we're able to finance stuff with the spread between the two bonds and then when you're able to spread around through government resources the deferral of impacts on different times a lot of you know huge outcomes can vary based upon all these extremely dry extremely abstract things but they are the backbone of our entire like world yeah yeah i think uh you know, a, a lot of people don't really want to think a lot about developers and stuff. And I understand the skepticism about developers generally, for sure. Um, but I've learned so much and I feel like I have such a better understanding of why things are the way they are and also how we might fix them because I really try to understand things from the perspective of a developer. Um, and, you know, not someone who's trying to necessarily do bad things or take advantage of anyone but just like looking at the system we've created for them to operate in and like what are the choices in front of them and i think you know the the point about leverage and all of this is also relevant but i think about with uh with people who are not developing but just buying existing housing as landlords um there's this the reality is that the way our rules are set up because the most profitable thing you can do is buy a property that has long-term tenants in it and find any way you can to kick them out and charge market rates on those units. Which is, which is even protected, you know, to, to, by the Owls Act, you know, with some... Right, caveats. right. But there are yeah. ways around it and people, you know, cash for keys or they threaten eviction and see if people just leave sure. without trying to fight it. And, and my, my point just is that because that avenue exists the people willing to pay the most for those properties are going to be the ones who are most willing to take those actions because they have a higher upside than the person who's looking at that property and saying, well, you know, half the tenants are paying below market and I'm just going to have to like make an offer on the property based on that revenue stream rather than based on the expectation that I'll be able to kick them out. And so the policy framework that we set up on the landlord side, on the developer side, really, no matter what policy you're talking about, is so it's so central to all of this, and and you really have to see things from all these perspectives. Doesn't mean you have to like uh, agree with them or even sympathize with them, but if you don't even understand them, you're not going to come up with the right solutions in most cases. But that's a very funny point. We create a system, and we're, we're incenting you know the creation of mostly swamp creatures who do the most <laughs> evil because that's the only people who can thrive in this environment are the most unscrupulous uh well one thing about it too i i think i noticed that in your breakdown in the appendix of the, of the book uh you know making a distinction and i feel like the terminology i i really do wonder if there's a way to unlock it to make it more intuitive of the fact developers you know uh how much uh, how much develop developers get and based upon different studies 10 mm-hmm. percent. but then on top of it not like 
there is multiple parts of the development scheme. There are the actual development firms, which are the people who coordinate the construction. They're actually they mm-hmm. do the they do the stuff. And then there's the equity developers. And if you look right. at those two, within it, the equity people, which is more or less the people who are way up front who take the purely speculative aspect, they get seventy percent, as opposed to people who do the stuff get thirty percent. But I feel like there's a way like it's just like developers. And usually when you think developers, you think cranes. When really the equity people, they don't have cranes. <laughs> They're land bankers, you know? Well, I'm I'm not sure I would characterize it that way. I mean, for one, I think a lot of developers are themselves putting in equity. Um, some people, some it, people do it, both. It varies, absolutely. yeah. It, yeah. It, sometimes they're really more just like fee for service. But I think there's an expectation that you usually have some kind of quote unquote skin in the game. Um yeah. But I mean, certainly, and again, this is where like, I understand the perspective of like, if you're putting money in before you even have an approval, um, you might be, that might cost you tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to get to that approval stage, excluding the cost of buying the land itself, which you might be like, you know, in a escrow or something, holding that off until the approvals are, are signed. Um, but you know, putting those hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line to see if you can get an approval, like when you have the risk of losing it entirely, like if it do, if it goes poorly and you just get nothing out of that deal, no surprise that people expect more money from that than you know putting it in the stock market where the odds are it's just going to go up by seven percent a year or whatever. Oh um, no, I mean, I, I certainly don't want to say that like there is something inherently like you know, uh, slimy about it as much as it is unfortunate that so much of the actual money in the mm-hmm. game is being, you know, buying lottery tickets yeah, in yeah. a purely man-made fiction of can you get approvals or not? Yeah. As opposed to like, like it's like this is just wasted energy. For that's everybody. really the, the issue is why should it be such a risk to build a building to get approvals? Why can't we just set clear rules? And if you follow them, you get to build the building and then it wouldn't you wouldn't have people expecting 15% returns on their money because it wouldn't be a risky investment and you could just get the 10% or 8% or whatever and it would just cost less to build housing um and that would be yeah. a great thing to happen and it could just be more like a job than like as you say a lottery ticket basically yeah and i think there's a distinction too of like if i were to say okay you are going to be an equity developer i give you a bunch of money find find a permit somewhere come back to me you're going like that's risky it's gonna take a lot of energy but there are ways that people kind of get the upside but they also kind of play it safe on the downside like they can be kind of a low rent slumlord but they're also mm-hmm. have a, like they have a you know lottery tick in their back pocket oh yeah but if i get the upside of development i'll take it so yeah, yeah. there's ways people eat, eat both sides of the plate well and i think you know especially in places with rent stabilization again, I'm a big supporter of the rent stabilization programs that we have, but it's important to acknowledge the downsides. And one of them is that, you know, the longer someone stays in a unit, the more incentive there is for the landlord to get them out of there one way or another. And, you know, if you're that slumlord landlord, who's just kind of like not making any investments and letting things deteriorate somewhat, not so much that you can't come back from it, but like just letting it deteriorate until you have people leave. Um, and then you can get people who are willing to pay more and fix it up then. Like that's actually yeah. a good investment. And like, we have to create a policy framework where that doesn't pay off anymore. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I think it is really scary. The trade-off between vacancy control and vacancy decontrol, vacancy decontrol 
kind of works well within the assumption set that production is going to continue to happen Mm -hmm. such that people are moving around at a healthy pace. But when things get so crazy that people are basically locked in their rent, like locked in their apartment, then you get extremely perverse outcomes. Yeah. So like, you know, vacancy decontrol, it's fine in good times, kind of bad in bad times. Yeah. Uh, Vacancy control is kind of, you know, I don't know if it's a flip side, but it's a way of making explicit the risk and if you kind of sloppily put in vacancy control, uh, you know, where it is always going to be rent stabilized, like you can do a lot of extremely kind of clumsy stuff with it. And I think in practice, that's what has tended to happen with a bunch of dimwits, you know, kind of <laughs> in, in, in like, you know, previous times who don't have a lot of flexibility to iterate and adapt. But, you know, I mean, I really do think if you really ask me, I think long term i think you do need something like vacancy control but properly managed across an entire region in a way that you don't get the bad outcomes but easier said than done but i mean i think it's very hard to kind of say oh yeah we'll just do that tomorrow it's like well if we don't we don't have any of the toolboxes do that tomorrow and i think whether you're talking about vacancy control or vacancy decontrol just rent control in general a lot of people want to point to the the downsides of it and and you know these crazy situations that arise and blame rent control and in a sense that's correct but really at root the reason these strange situations and poor outcomes arise is because we're just not building enough homes ultimately yeah. and if you just built enough homes and had rent stabilization like the rent stabilization almost wouldn't even matter because having enough homes itself would be the rent stabilization policy, right? And that's that's sort of the the one of the big arguments in my book is like it's if you really believe that building enough homes is going to keep housing affordable, then if you have to agree to rent stabilization to get the policies you care about that will build enough homes, it shouldn't really concern you. Yeah, why do you care? Like, why is sub-inflation rent control a problem if your policies are going to actually drive housing prices down at less than inflation? Yeah. Like, I do think there's. Get- I think there's a legitimate concern though that like we're we're going to approve the rent stabilization and then certain people are just going to walk away and say, "Well, our job is done." Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, and I, it's I've a said valid this- concern, completely. But oh, absolutely. I mean, I think I've said this many, many times that rent control is excellent policy but terrible politics insofar as you know it's the same kind of ways how do you have a population who works within policy to create good outcomes if instead of actually dealing with the bad outcomes you you know hit the snooze button and you kind of say oh everything's <laughs> fine and like so many things you know everything from prop 13 to i think some of the more sloppy Im- implementations of rent control and so on they are ways of saying it's like let's not deal with the systems and the institutions let's take the easy way out to just kind of save our necks which is yeah. good i want you to save your necks or they'll they'll but, deal with the symptoms but not the cause absolutely right, right. yeah it's 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 that, <laughs> the point i always make with rent control and tenant protections in general is they can they can keep things from getting worse, but they can't actually make things better than they are today. Like you have to actually build things and make investments for that to happen. And oh, it's absolutely. not a knock against tenant protections at all to say that they don't make things better. Keeping things from getting worse is really important. And especially in places where things are changing really rapidly, having that sort of moderating force um, to smooth things out as you make the investments, either public or private, 
um, to make things better in the long run. Like that's that's really important. Again, it's just to say that they both matter and they do different things. And like choosing one or the other is not going to get you where you need to go. Unless unless you reach pure enlightenment and perfected rent control does make everything better. And that's the land value tax, which I'm obligated <laughs> for the Andrew George program to say that land value tax does make appearances in the subsidy recommendation sections yes. of the book. Uh, some of the stuff that like I think any policy person you know, realizes that this is kind of all roads lead to land value tax in some <laughs> ways, but the politics are never easy. <laughs> and I think, I think in, in a place that kind of deals with short to medium terms to a large degree, it is obviously not a focus of the book, but it's, you I know. I think the only thing that would be less popular than a land value tax might be taxing imputed rents. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> great policy which... in theory, but just the worst politics in the world. It's it's yeah. I mean, I I love I love throwing imputed rents. You know, just the phrase and every sort of discourse because it makes everyone so upset. You know, it's it blows everything up. It's fun. But I think but, Germany uh, is one of the places that does tax them, or maybe it's Switzerland, or maybe both. But those happen to be two, the two places in Europe that have the lowest homeownership rates, um, and especially Germany has stayed quite affordable in 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 most respects. It's kind of I'm, I'm, struggling yeah. right now, but overall, it's done pretty well. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I feel like that's a thing. Like if, if uh, you're dealing with, you know, the affordable, you know, city, you know, German edition, you imagine you get a lot more kind of crazy stuff, you know, there. I mean, yeah, I'm kind yeah. of, I'm, I'm surprised they're not like really doing bleeding edge stuff there. Like they're doing like, it's like, okay, they have a new rent control policy. That's fine. But you know, we're doing it in America. You should be doing crazier stuff over there. <laughs> Seems to be uh, working I'm, mostly. Yeah, exactly. I just want to see them kind of really, you know, leverage it up to crazy, crazy new heights. But I need to talk to more Germans, apparently. But uh, uh, any, any final thoughts here? I think we've been talking for quite a bit, so I probably should wrap things up. Nope. Let's conclude. <laughs> well, okay, well done. Easy. Uh, uh, ship it. So, yeah, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. It was great. Cool. Cool. We have been talking to Shane Phillips all about the affordable city, homeownership, and much more. You can find this episode and all previous episodes of this radio show at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KZSU, Stanford 91.3.